In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Sometimes the message that we're trying to communicate gets lost because of the way that we're communicating it. Take, for example, these tried and true words often spoken by parents to their children. You better watch your tone of voice. Now, the content is good. We want to encourage our children to use a tone of voice that's respectful and kind. But the style is off because the message is being communicated in a way that's not particularly respectful or kind. It happens. Sometimes the words that we speak don't line up very well with the message that we're trying to communicate. In her book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, Karen Armstrong devotes an entire chapter to the theme of using language to bring healing to the world. Words are readily available resources for encouraging other people, for dreaming dreams, for articulating public statements that can inspire and gather our energies for the common good. Faith is made up of words. Every time we gather, we pray prayers, listen to sermons, sing hymns, and the words that we use are important. Anyone who's ever tried to change the language of a familiar hymn will understand just how important words are to people who've grown to love that particular song. The Bible begins with a story about the power of language, about a God who speaks the world into being. So these are the very first verses for the entire Bible in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. It's believed that those words were first composed when the nation of Israel was in exile in Babylon about 600 years before Jesus was born. So at a time of great disruption and chaos and disorder, these words which speak of beauty and creative power and order were given to the people to bolster their faith. This past week, I came across a beautiful article by a young poet named Sophia Stid, and the title of the article is called, The Church is Made of Words. And in this article, Sophia describes her childhood experience of growing up within the Roman Catholic faith, and she used to worship at a church that had beautiful stone carvings along the interior walls of the sanctuary. And on these carvings were uh, crafted inspirational words carved right into the stone. So she used to love to read these during the services when she was a young child. And she said, I can trace the beginning of my life as a poet back to those moments in that pew, listening to words, turning them over in my mind has taught me to listen to the meanings behind words and read the silences between them. We'd like to believe that the church is a community where the language that we use consistently builds up the spirit of those around us. But we know that's not true. The fact that the church is made with words 
has a positive meaning in the sense that carefully chosen nouns and verbs and adjectives can indeed encourage the faith of people. But the church has also used words to conceal, to condemn, to isolate, to hide its own abuses. The word that we use to describe the gap between what we intend and what we say is hypocrisy. It's something that Jesus criticized in his own lifetime, and yet something that Jesus actually confronted in himself at one point. I chose to include a story about Jesus and his encounter with a woman desperate for the healing of her young child because it shows him coming to grips with the uses and abuses of language. In this story, Jesus travels beyond the more familiar environment of Israel out into another geographical area, Syrophoenicia. And there he is met by a woman who's desperate for the healing of her daughter. So she reaches out to Jesus. The disciples try to push her away, but she continues to get closer to him. And he basically dismisses her. And in a very cruel and abrasive way, she won't take no for an answer. So she uses language to come back to him. And he is so impressed by her love, her compassion, and her perseverance that he offers healing to her daughter. Now, there's a lot to learn about the language of faith from that story of that Syrophoenician woman. It's an example of how words can be used to harm and dehumanize. And of course, it's a little shocking. Well, not a little shocking, but really surprising to see that kind of language coming from Jesus. But perhaps we're seeing him at a moment in his life where his, his understanding of his mission is quite narrow and needs to be broadened. The story is also about words that can be used to advocate for others, to defy authority, to press through for greater compassion. And of course, all that's embodied in the life of the Syrophoenician woman and her advocacy on behalf of her daughter. The good news of this story is that the words of the woman awaken something in Jesus. He responds to her, he connects to her. And eventually, of course, his mission expands to include not just Israel or Syrophoenicia, but the entire world. And maybe this woman had a decisive role to play in that inner movement of Jesus' life. Giving some really careful consideration to the power and richness of language is one of the most accessible ways we have of changing the world. Sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, I wanna do something with my life that makes a difference. We can all start that process by using words in ways that heal rather than harm. Words are always at our disposal. Cost nothing to use them. And using words well can be fun. Last week I was talking with an employee at a business that Susan and I uh, like to support. And uh, when I opened up the door, I met a woman and she and I have gotten to know each other a little bit. And she said to me, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? She said, I'm doing great. I was invited to a pity party this morning and I declined the invitation. Now, just in that sweet moment and her creative use of language, it brightened her life, it brightened mine, and it sent me out of the door with a little bit of a spring in my step and a smile on my lips through the power of language. We can find ways to bring out of language its capacity to connect us, to build bridges between us, to overcome misunderstanding. And we're long overdue for creating a culture of language that is compassionate.
Right now, we are living in a very divisive, polarized context, largely because of the way we use words. Karen Armstrong has said that most public debate today could be characterized by this phrase, aggressive certainty. In that environment, every conversation can feel like a battleground. We're more interested in winning than in understanding. And we advocate our positions without ever thinking to give other people an, a, a, an opportunity to advocate theirs. So one of the first actions we can take to draw forth more of the healing energy of language is to become more conscious of how we speak and use words on a daily basis, both in relationship to others and ourselves. In his book, Words That Hurt and Words That Heal, Joseph Telishkin challenges his readers to actually conduct a bit of a language audit for 24 hours, to keep a book with us, or to use our phones, and to record the way that we use language. Positive, negative, critical, supportive. Keep track of that for 24 hours. And as I've said, to do that both in relationship to the way we speak to others and the way we speak to ourselves. And to try to begin to understand are we making the most of language? Are we really using its beautiful, boundless capacity to heal? Or are we shortchanging ourselves and shortchanging the vocabulary at our disposal? Once we're conscious of how we tend to use language, of some of the stock phrases that we might be using that demean or dehumanize rather than lift up and celebrate, we can begin to tap the power of language to to be a force for the common good. And there are easy ways to draw forth the power of language to help and to heal. One of the things that we can do during the course of a day is to ask ourselves this question, hopefully before we speak as well as afterwards, is the thing that I'm about to say going to build up or is it going to tear down? Is it going to encourage or is it going to discourage? The word that's sometimes used for language that builds up is the word edify. In fact, it's a word that's used frequently in the letters of the New Testament. It was a word that was, I think, a favorite of St. Paul's because as he was working with new Christian congregations around the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago, he knew that the most accessible way they had to encourage one another was through the power of language. And he constantly encouraged them to use language that edifies, which means to build up and to strengthen. So we can carry this simple question with us through the day and through the week and to ask, is what I'm about to say going to build up or will it tear down? And then there's the rule of five. This is sometimes used in management circles to describe the proportion of positive comments to negative comments that are needed in a work culture in order to build a culture that is productive and satisfying. It's believed that there needs to be a proportion of five positive comments for every constructive critique. Now, this is not to say that constructive critique should be dismissed entirely. I mean, how would we learn? if we didn't have the capacity to say to one another, you know, I have something constructive to say to you here uh, to help you on your way. In a recent article in the Harvard Business Review, Jack Zenger and Joseph Folkman said negative feedback is important, especially when we're heading over a cliff to warn us that we'd really better stop doing something horrible or start doing something we're not doing right away.
And after all, what would the learning process be if we couldn't do that with or for one another? But even the most well-intentioned criticism can rupture relationships and undermine self-confidence and initiative. It can change behavior, certainly, but it doesn't cause people to put forth their best efforts. Speak the truth in love, said St. Paul. So if we're offering critical or constructive comment, we also have to find a way to offer encouragement that will bring out the best in us. And what about saving words that have special power for us? Over the years, I've kept a book. In fact, this used to be called a chapbook, or this kind of thing used to be called a chapbook. Pretty simple journal that I bought many years ago, started using in 1987. And it contains a lot of my favorite quotations that I have collected over the years as I've read books. So I can go back to that little book and I can find those quotations when I'm feeling in need of inspiration and I can use the power of language for a little self-edification, to, to build up or bolster my spirit when I find that necessary. And a chapbook can be not only good for us, it can be good for others. I've known people who've collected these quotations over the years and then have given them to others as gifts to say, these words were powerful for me, I hope they can be powerfully good for you. As people of faith, we have been entrusted with language that can change the world for the better. Those sacred words of our tradition can fill us with hope and give us the courage to speak words of healing and helpfulness and goodwill. Amen.